0: Well, good morning, y'all. It's good to see you. Uh, Well, if you guys wanna go and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 104, we're gonna be there in just a moment. But for the beginning here, we're gonna begin with, um, well, a little piece of research that Lifeway Research, they partner with Ligonier Ministries every two years in what they call the State of Theology. Uh, If you're interested in this, you can go to thestateoftheology.com and read it this week but the basic summation of what the research is all about is they poll both americans and you know american christians to get a kind of theological temperature on what are the primary beliefs Uh, that are kind of underlying both just America as as a whole, but also within that, like American Christians, like how are we doing within our theology? So it just was released this past week, and the kind of big conclusion that everybody's been talking about over the past week, uh, not everybody, weird pastor people like me has been talking about this week, is uh, that an exceeding percentage of kind of evangelical American Christians hold beliefs that just about every wing and age tradition of Christianity would call heresy. An overwhelming percentage of American Christians would be, you know, to use the, the big fancy word, heretics, holding to those kinds of, not just like, oh, you know, matters of opinion, but like deep fundamental issues within their beliefs. And so I recommend you look at that without getting into all the heresies. The bigger question that's really interesting is, is kind of considering how did we get a nation of heretics? How do we get to a place where not really minute doctrinal issues, but big picture, big issues within the Christian faith are being missed by a majority of Christians? Russell Moore for Christianity Today wrote, you'll see behind me, the missing piece right now is not so much the ability to articulate doctrines, but a more fundamental literacy of Scripture, a more fundamental ability to read the Bible. This is what New Testament scholar David Ninehouse uh, quoted, lamented that we have a generation that's been trained to be Bible quoters rather than Bible readers. The idea being that you have a whole generation that the way that we've been trained to relate to this book, largely because of the preaching that we've sat under, so if you feel like this is me going after you, this is just as much an issue happening within the pastoral realm as well, is we have been fundamentally wired to read the Bible with little snippets out of context that have been brought over for us to have a little nugget that we carry with us. And so this is most American preaching, and so it shouldn't be a surprise that this is most American Bible readers. This was all seen, the canary in the coal mine, 38 years ago, Dallas Willard, when he wrote, The open secret of many Bible-believing churches is that only a very small percentage of their members study the Bible with even the degree of interest, intelligence, or joy they bring to bear upon their favorite newspaper or magazine. You can tell this was written 38 years ago. So just read into that, you know, anything on your phone, your newsfeed, or your timeline. Willard continues, In my opinion, based on considerable experience, this is primarily because they do not know and are not taught how to understand the experience of biblical characters in terms of how they experience life. They do not know, and they have not been taught. All of this comes together as just a reminder, an affirmation of our fall series that we've been in, How to Read the Bible, Navigating the Library of Scripture. Our hope over these past few weeks has been to help build our community as one that knows what to do with this book, a community of more than just Bible quoters, Bible readers. And so that has been our hope. And so behind me, you'll see kind of our working definition of the Bible that we've been making our way through. The Bible is a library or the library of ancient writings, both divine and human, that tell a unified story, leading us to Jesus and forming us as his people. And so, so far, we've looked at the Bible as both divine and human. We've looked at it as a unified library that leads us to Jesus, that is, it's messianic literature. And all those us pronouns last week was us looking at how the Bible is communal literature. It's made to be read and interpreted and engaged in a community. And so today we're coming back to that big word there of ancient, that the Bible is ancient. It is an ancient library of writings, and it needs to be read in light of that the ancient language and ancient culture that the Bible comes from. The big fancy word for this is that the Bible is contextual literature. It has a context and needs to be read within that context. And though there's no like, you know, 11th commandment, thou shalt read the Bible in context, uh, we don't really have a passage for this. And so today's going to be more of a reflection on this biblical truth. But to get us going today, I wanted to look at one example that really highlights how the Bible comes to us from a a context, a culture different than our own with Psalm 104. And so we're going to read from Psalm 104, kind of in keeping with last week, all of Psalm 104 together, and allowing us to just see a reflection on who God the creator is as perceived by and described by someone that's speaking with the perspective of an ancient Israelite. And so what this, as we're going to read through it, will do, maybe prompt some questions, but more than anything, I hope, will set us with a proper posture to meet the God we believe is speaking to us in that book, in this book. So if, you'll, if you've got Psalm 104 there in front of you, would you join me in standing for the reading of the scriptures today? Psalm 104. So let's, let's pray uh, before we read. Oh, Father, we come to you, each of us from a number of different places, some of us feeling... Uh, solid and steady at the end of this week or the beginning of a new one, as one of my friends said, Another of us were exhausted and tired and distracted. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bring to us a, a posture of attentiveness, got a receptivity to learning more about your word that we might better embody and obey it to find its truth applied within our lives today. And so, Holy Spirit, come, speak through your scriptures, and would you speak through me today, giving us a framework for how to better read the Bible. And again, not just to better read the Bible, but better live it out within our lives. Psalm 104. My soul, bless the Lord. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with majesty and splendor. He wraps himself in light as if it were a robe, spreading out the sky like a canopy, laying the beams of his palace on the waters above, making the clouds his chariot, walking on the wings of the wind and making the winds his messenger, flames of fire his servants. He established the earth on its foundations. It will never be shaken. You covered it with the deep as if it were a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. Mountains rose, valleys sank to the place that you established for them. You set a boundary they can never cross. They will never cover the earth again. He causes the springs to gush into the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They supply water for every wild beast. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky live beside the springs. They make their voices heard among the foliage. He waters the mountains from his palace. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of your labor. He causes grass to grow for the livestock and provides crops for man to cultivate, producing fruit from the earth, wine that makes human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil and bread that sustains human hearts. The trees of the Lord flourish, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, storks make their homes in the pine trees. The high mountains are for wild goats, the cliffs are a refuge for hyraxes. He made the moon to mark the festivals, the sun to know when to set. You bring darkness and it becomes night when all the forest animals stir. The young lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises, they go back and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. How countless are your works, Lord. In wisdom, you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, vast and wide, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships move about and Leviathan, which you formed to play there. All of them wait for you to give them their food at the right time. When you give it to them, they gather it. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. But when you send your breath, they are created, and you renew the surface of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches mountains and they pour out smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God while I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him. I will rejoice in the Lord. May sinners vanish from this earth and the wicked people be no more. My soul bless the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Go and take a seat. All literature, all writing, every and any creative human endeavor and work exists within a context for understanding. A context for understanding. One example of this came from Christine Hoover in our fall book club, the popular Instagram account at overheard LA. For most of you that aren't aware, Overheard LA is a uh, Instagram account that they receive and then repost uh, submitted quotations that have been heard from around our city. A few of my favorite examples, uh, Overheard Conversation. How serious are you guys? He got me a residential parking permit for his neighborhood. I feel like that's the equivalent of a diamond in Los Angeles. The next one. Do you skateboard or snowboard? No, I only charcuterie board. The next one. No, I haven't been to Echo Park. Our office is in Marina, and I live in Culver. I've never been east of Netflix. The people at Blue Bottle keep giving me whole milk when I order almond. In L.A., that's a hate crime. The next one. We only dated for 11 Instagrams. Oh, no. And then finally, I love you, but not drive you to L.A. LAX love you. So here you have all of these little things that bring some kind of response that you and I resonate with because you and I have within us a 2022 Angelino encyclopedia. That when we read these things, they resonate with us, not only because we speak English, which they're written in, but we understand uh, Netflix as being more than for most people simply a streaming service. It's a physical location. We understand Culver as a city and not what most Midwesterns understand it to be as is a fast food chain in the home of the Butterburger. I see those hands. We understand Blue Bottle as being, even though it doesn't say Blue Bottle Coffee Shop, for those of us that live here, we know Blue Bottle is not just a glass uh, container, it's a, co- it's a way of talking about a coffee shop. We can understand measuring time in Instagrams, and we understand the depth of love that is the trip to LAX. We understand these things. We have an Angelino encyclopedia. Communication is contextual. These same posts would be gobbledygook that would require so much translation for an elderly woman from Jakarta who has only spoken Indonesian or Chinese for most of her life. Similarly, these same posts would be gobbledygook for someone just 100 years ago, but still living here in Los Angeles. Every time you open the Bible, you are taking an overseas flight and getting in a time machine. Every time you open the Bible, it is a cross-cultural experience. And Psalm 104 is just one example of that. We just read a moment ago a at-overheard ancient Israel, as it were. And so each time we open the Bible, we need to read it as such. As Dan Kimball writes in his How Not to Read the Bible, he says, Though we believe the Bible was written for us, it was not written to us. Though the Bible was written for us, it is for our benefit. We are not the first audience receiving it. It was written to someone else. And the better we understand who it was written to and why, the more faithful we will be in figuring out how now it applies and is for us today. And so today to kind of look at some of this, we've got three things we're gonna look at. One is how do we get a better grasp at the language of the Bible? Two, how do we better understand the culture of the Bible? And third, how can we literally bring all of this home to us? How is this applied in Los Angeles in 2022? Now, the fact that I've started talking about better grasping ancient language and ancient cultures has some of you breaking out in sweat right now. And here, I'll just get this out. You'll hear this multiple times. The call of today is not that all of you become like seminarian Bible nerds, but simply just pointing out some important notes that are often not seen in our reading of the Bible that lead to a lot of complications and giving some little practical handholds and tools for better you know, getting out of the time machine, as it were, and then getting back into it. Sound good? Okay, so first let's look at the languages of the Bible by just acknowledging what might be new for some of us is that the Bible wasn't written in English. The Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in ancient, uh, in the Old Testament, Hebrew and Aramaic, and the New Testament in ancient Koinea Greek. And so if, let's just, you know, imagination zone for a moment. If you were booking a flight to go somewhere that English was not the primary language, if spoken at all, one of the first things that you would begin to do months in advance is you would, one, start trying to learn the language, or two, you would hire a translator for yourself. Because you know, if I go into some place without knowing the, the language, I am going to get, it's going to go poorly for me. And this is where the gift of your English translation comes in. Because as someone who has studied the original languages, this thing provides you with the ability to save so much time, money, and as I and my wife can attest, mental health. in being able to understand a majority of what was written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek without having to spend all of the money and all of the time and all of the mental exhaustion in learning Greek or Hebrew, or I never even got close to touching Aramaic. And so when you pick up your English Bible, I want you to think of it more and more as being like a hired translator kind of like C-3PO or uh, Lost in Translation, The Terminal or Hurt Locker, Close Encounters. You have all of these movies where you have someone that's a mediator between the conversation of two people that don't speak the same language. And so someone that stands in the middle, hears what they say, and then says it back to you. And that is what your English translation is doing. It is a uh, in many cases, either one, but most often the main thing is a team of scholars that are working together to be the translator. That Moses writes this and then they, they repeat it back to you. To see that there is this process of translation that's happening here. And so the question then is, why do we have multiple English translations? This is actually a hiccup point for many people in coming to like investigate the Christian faith is how can you take this thing seriously? There's, you know, 20, 30, however many English translations. For those of you that are multilingual know that languages and words work differently. Depending on the language that you're translating from or to, there are, you know, the fancy words, things like grammar and syntax and semantic range that need to be taken accord of. And so all good translations, all of your English translations work on this spectrum that you'll see behind me. So again, think of C3PO or the translator in between the two parties. And those, those teams, when they're trying to translate from the original languages to English, what they're working on is this spectrum of either one side being more of a word-for-word translation, what's called formal, or on the other side, more of a dynamic thought-for-thought. Thought. And so you'll see over here toward the formal side is things like the NASB, the ESV, the King James, and then over here, we'll come back to those in a moment. And so these on the, my left of this side of the... Um, of the slide, what you'll see is these translations that are leaning more towards a more faithful word for word re uh, translation of it. And so this is super helpful because you're getting the a, a very, they're getting as close as they can in the English to what was written in the Hebrew. The problem is, is that in many ways it's, it's not very readable. It feels like you're reading Yoda sometimes because in order to keep the word order, Hebrew and Greek word order doesn't work like English. And so sometimes you read it and it feels like you're reading like the Yoda translation. And so on the other side, you have the dynamic, which would be more like the NIV or the NLT, the message, for those of you that know these, that these are leaning more towards the angle of trying to make it as readable as possible for a modern audience. And so this is really helpful, but what ends up happening is sometimes you lean more in the direction of interpretation than an immediate translation good example of this is in the movie Lost in Translation. There's this very lengthy explanation of something in Japanese. And the the translator turns to Bill Murray's character and gives like a very short summary of what was like this very long quote. And the response is like, is that all he said? And so sometimes in leaning the NLT or the message, we're trying to make it dynamic and readable for us today, do a little more interpretation. And that is so helpful. And the whole point is to go back to that spectrum is neither of these are wrong or right. But as the scholar Scott McKnight talks about them, they're like golf clubs. They're doing different things better than others. And so just to go back to the slide, Kyle, if you wanna throw that up, right in the middle here, is the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, which those of you that have been around know that we just recently moved to the CSB as our default translation here. And the whole point was the CSB, when they sought out this big committee team to make a new translation, a revised translation of what was called the Holman Christian Standard Bible, their goal was, how do we, hit the, how do we be the best like right on the middle? right? How do we just, what would it look like to have a translation that serves as this really awesome middle place? And they, they were able to accomplish it, and the proof is in the math. Dr. Andy Wu of the Global Bible Initiative, he took all of these major translations and did a computerized linguistic analysis to score all of these major nine translations on formal, dynamic, and a balance in between them. And what he found, the quote being, you can read all of it. It's on our uh, collectivechurch.com CSB. But just to summarize, the big quote is, at the end of his findings, of all the English translations being evaluated, the Christian Standard Bible is the best at balancing literalness and readability. So to go back to the mediator portrait, the CSB, if you've got a range of nine interpreters, is the best at doing the best job in, in summarizing the formal word for word, but also applying that as best as possible within our reading today. So that's really, really helpful. And so that's why we've moved to the CSB as our default translation, our recommended translation here at Collective, because it balances this spectrum well. But I want you to hear me that this does not mean we're leaving behind the others. They are still incredibly helpful. And so to get really practical here, how do I read the Bible within its original languages without having to learn the original languages? Is to read, the, you know, a passage that you're looking at within, you know, the CSB is a good middle ground, and then pick one more formal and one more dynamic translation to then kind of triangulate the text. You know, to use like a really fun, you know, like you know idea where you've got your CSB is a middle one, something more formal like the ESV, and something maybe more dynamic like the NLT or the NIV, and so you read it, and then just read those other two along. Alongside it, just kind of, and you'll find so much of it is very consistent. And when there's differences, you kind of use those to triangulate the meaning of the original text. This is what I do when I'm preparing my teaching. When we went through Ephesians or Mark, and I'm looking for how to best summarize these things, is I'll just—I don't go into geek, you know, Greek land very much except to maybe dive in a little bit deeper from what I'm seeing within those other translations. And so what's so awesome here is that with apps like Uversion, is it has never been easier for like y'all to be able to really easily jump through a couple different translations in a reading and be able to kind of work in, triangulate along the text to get a really good grasp on the original languages without having to learn them. Amen. I'm telling as someone who has learned Greek, you don't know how awesome that is. It's it's incredible the technology that we have here, but to go back to Overheard LA, though certain wor- certain words have a different range of meanings. So a good example of this is let's say we go on our airplane and we're reading Overheard LA tweets to you know an elderly woman in Jakarta. Just because we have someone who translates blue bottle to her doesn't mean that she's going to upload that as being a coffee shop. Yes, and that's because. Within the Angelino, what's called the semantic range of what the word blue bottle can mean, we have not just a glass container, but we have a coffee shop that fits within that. She wouldn't, and so we would need to explain to her what we mean when we're talking about a blue bottle. And so as we read from the Bible, we also need to be aware of our pre-existing encyclopedias for a word's meaning to check those out the door. So a couple brief examples before some kind of tools for how to be aware of this. So examples, first is in the gospels, Jesus is all the time talking about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is the kingdom of heaven. Most of us with a primarily American framework, we read into that that Jesus is talking about a post-death place that you go. But when you follow Jesus's words and how he's talking about what the kingdom of heaven is, it is not simply a post-death destination. It's a reality that's arriving presently through him on earth. And so you can understand why if you're reading through the gospels, you're going to get radically different readings if you think that all Jesus is talking about is where you go when you die, as opposed to a present reality in breaking through him. Other examples of this are our word of faith, which we read as basically being mental assent or believing in maybe a list of doctrines. Whereas when Paul or the writers of the New Testament or the Old Testament use it, faith is language of trust, of a loyalty, most often used outside of the Bible to talk about allegiance to a commanding officer or a political ruler. Do you see the difference of where your reading of the New Testament is going to get if you believe that faith is simply you believing the right things as opposed to a whole life lived in allegiance to Jesus as king? Other examples of this that we've detailed in the past is we think of grace as being God's unconditional acceptance of us as opposed to grace being, as it's used in the scriptures, God's power at work within one person's whole life. That begins with his unconditioned love, that is, it's unearned, but as you read through the New Testament, you find that it's not unconditional. Unconditioned, but not unconditional. You can do this with words like love. We have one in English. The Greek language has five. With heart, which you and I think of as what pumps blood or what has all of our feelings. In Hebrew, it was the center of all of the human self. These are all examples of different encyclopedias that we need to be aware of. In the words of Inigo Montoya, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. This is what regularly happens when we come to the Bible. So how do we be aware of this? Here's the practical thing. Read your Bible slowly. Follow the way that a word is being used in the surrounding context. Be slow to read into something, specifically key words in a passage, immediately what you think they might mean. The biggest step is to simply be aware of the fact that you're embarking on a cross-cultural experience, to check your encyclopedia at the door and to let the, the authors define what they're talking about. And so again, really practical ways to walk in this without having to go to you know, Bible college. Reading with multiple translations is what helps with that. Following cross-references of where that word is used in other places in the Bible. With Google, you can do that immediately. That's part of the work of what preaching and teaching is meant to be in the life of the church is saturating our, our minds in the encyclopedia of Scripture. For those of you that really want to nerd out on this, this is where the Bible Project has short form little five minute animated videos that will like go through a a word and they unpack the encyclopedia of the biblical authors. Words like gospel or love or compassionate or slow to anger. And in a five minute little cartoon, you're like, you got it all uploaded right there. For those of you that are super nerds, they have a whole like online free classroom on the art of biblical words that you can take. Just replace that with like Netflix, you know, one night a week and you know, you're know you gonna be well off. And then the super, super nerds, this is what commentaries do, biblical commentaries. But again, that is not where most of us needs to be. For most of us, just reading slowly, we're gonna catch so much more than we normally do than like, you know, skimming like a jet ski over the text. More on that next week. And so reading the Bible is a cross-cultural experience and, and through a helpful necessary steps to be able to find a way to bring on some of the understanding of this. And so though you know Bible nerds who are like saturated in the languages are helpful, I would argue even necessary in the life of the community, much of that heavy lifting can be done through just having a, a good translation or two, reading it with a few other people and just slow really reading the passage. This is, this is how good some of these translations are. So there's language behind us. Let's now move to culture, because again, with Overheard LA, just because I might tell someone that Los Angeles LAX means airport, or to explain the idea of what a parking permit pass is, we get those comments because we know both the challenges and the necessity of those things. What we're getting into here is that beneath language, there is culture. There is a, a way of seeing the world, a th- way of understanding some of these key things. And so to read the Bible well, we need to become acquainted with the customs, the mores, the behaviors, the laws, the assumptions, and the events around what was being written. This is the word cultural context or literally the worldview, the way of seeing the world that the biblical authors had. And this doesn't mean that we need to adopt or reject their cultural views of like an Eastern or Jewish culture to be able to understand and respond to what they were writing. So what are some of these prominent ancient worldviews? You'll see some of these behind me. We've been examining these in the book club, how not to read the Bible. So for some of you that have been around in that, this might be um, kind of double dipping, but that'll be okay. So first is um, one, the current events that are surrounding the writing of the passage that you're looking at. If you were with us in Mark's gospel, you remember how central some of what was happening within Rome politically at the time of the writing of Mark's gospel brought a, a unique sharp edge to what we were reading that you would have missed if you didn't know about you know, the year of the four emperors or whatever. But the moment we know about that, it brought immediate impact, not just to how we were reading it, but then how we were applying it in our political moment at the end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021. Uh, geographic details around the writing of it. A gr- one of the like, classic examples of this is in Revelation chapter three, there's a word from Jesus that goes to the church in Laodicea. And Jesus says that the church, you guys, you guys are lukewarm. And so Jesus says, I will spit you out of my mouth. I would prefer that you were either cold or hot. And all of us who have grown up in like youth groups heard that as being that Jesus would rather have you be on fire for him or not a Christian at all, hot or cold. But when you understand the context and the geography of Laodicea, there were two cities that were nearby, and Laodicea was the one that was a a good walk away from both of them. One of those was a city that had hot springs nearby, and so, you know, you could go over to that city, and they had hot water that you could utilize for all sorts of ways. There was another city that had cold springs that ran down from the mountains, so they had cold water that was drinkable and healthy. You could use it for all sorts of things. Laodicea was a long walk from both, and so they were always getting lukewarm, tepid water that really wasn't nice or good good for anything. And so the whole point of what Jesus is saying here is, is hot water better than cold water? No, they're both equally good things. The issue is is a lukewarm reading. So it's not that Jesus would rather have you be not a Christian at all than a lukewarm one, but he would rather have you be a, a Christian of use and vitality and life within your circumstances. And so there you go. Did you see the misreading that can happen when you aren't aware of geographic details. Uh, some other ones is an ancient cosmology. You saw this in Psalm 104, didn't you? Psalm 104, that, that what's going on down here is you have an earth, like it's, a, it's, it's an ancient cosmology, a way of seeing the world, a flat earth established on foundations with waters below and waters above and a rakia, a firmament, a big you know, glass metal dome that's been hammered out, holding the waters above out from falling down on us. And every now and then those open up and that's when rain comes through. This is an ancient way of seeing the world. Leviathan, right? The language of, what is that? This is all an ancient cosmology, a way of seeing the world. It was just 50 years ago that we had photographic evidence that we are a pale blue dot. Not that long ago. And so we're, we're coming into a time machine and we have people that are thinking through who God is to the world through the framework of an ancient cosmology. Other examples of this is sacramental. We saw this as well. We would say that the lion isn't fed by God. We wouldn't say that, we, well, what, how is the water coming down from the mountains? Well, it's this whole process of snow melting and then it turns down and it comes into a creek in the river. And a sacramental view goes, we don't separate material from the spiritual. And so we saw that on display in Psalm 104 as well. Other examples of this that we might read over is a collectivist view of reality rather than an individualistic one. So this appears in places like Daniel 9 where the prophet Daniel repents for the sins of his nation and people, even though he himself has been blameless. He's repenting for sins that he didn't commit. Or in Isaiah 53, in the positive, you have the suffering servant who takes on the sins of his people to suffer for them so that he might bring redemption and forgiveness for them. That is a collective, why is he allowed and able to do that? A, A suffering servant, a substitute does not make sense in an individualistic society. It makes absolute sense in a collectivistic one. Similarly, in honor-shame culture, patriarchal situations of ritual purity—these are all other. These are layers of how they saw the world. Another great example of this is subsistence living. That man, if you had one bad farm day, you had one big mistake or something that happened, you'd be going on without food. You didn't have Whole Foods and Trader Joe's. That like you just always had food available to you. You didn't have DoorDash. And so one example of this is in a reading of the prodigal son with a bunch of people from a bunch of different contexts, when they read through it, there was a key thing that every, everyone else in the world, when they read the, prod, the story of the prodigal son caught, that American readers didn't. And it was that there was a famine in the story. That was one of the key things that sent the prodigal son back to the father was not just that he had squandered his wealth, but that a famine came. So the, the, the story of the prodigal son is just as much a rebellious and foolish son as a son being caught in the brokenness of a world and having just things happen that break down. And those two things together are what lead him back to the father. But we in our American worldview, both individualistic and we don't, we don't we read over a famine, we miss out on these, these key things. You guys beginning to see some of these little examples of how we miss key elements of the biblical text Simply just based off our perspective and reading. We want to be aware of these things. So, to get really practical, first off, we don't need to adopt an ancient cosmology to be able to understand and respond. We don't need to become patriarchal to understand how this, to respond to what we're finding within this. I don't need to become a flat earther to believe that God is the creator at work within all things. Yes, and amen. So, how do we read the Bible as a cross cultural experience? Really simple don't be an American tourist an American tourist. Nora Terriago, writing from Spain for Huffington Post, writes, the image of the American tourist is reflective of how the world at large views Americans, self-entitled, oblivious to matters outside of their, their own context, with little desire to learn of different cultures and languages. If there is one thing that we bring to the Bible, it's that we're bad American tourists. We're looking for the McDonald's. I, I regularly find that one of the key things that people have when I begin to talk about this is if this was God's word to me, then, then why is it not come to me in English? Why do I have to do all this work to understand it in its ancient context? And this is fundamentally, largely, just a problem that's experienced about America, by Americans. Self-entitled. Oblivious to matters outside of our own context with little desire to learn. Most biblical readers outside of really the West totally understand for God to work within human history and human context, and we are not a part of that context, but still the same receiving of it, it will require us to do an interpretative work to be translated because they live their whole life in that context. They know all about that. So for most of it, it's a matter of our own American privilege that makes us think that the Bible is somehow faulty because of this breaks down. Now, the good news here is that a sufficient understanding of the biblical text and what we're reading can be attained without earning a PhD in Second Temple Jewish literature. Amen, amen. And how do we do it? By reading slowly, by reading humbly and curiously, by embracing complexity within the texts, becoming aware of an overcorrection in our reading, being teachable, embracing that we were wrong, and reading it with other people, specifically other people from other contexts and other cultures. As we read, trying not to make immediate judgment of what would seem off to us, whether that's, you know, Leviathan or patriarchy, but allowing the stories to speak for themselves. Because though the Bible was written within and to these assumed cultures, it is quite regularly very critical of them. If you read through many of the stories where the patriarchal kind of dynamic is at large that make us irk, if you read through it and you pay attention and read the whole story, you will find that the Bible is actually fundamentally very critical of that dynamic, of, of even polygamy. These stories of coming into a polygamous culture as part of patriarchy, you will find that the Bible regularly is very critical of that. And so we go, oh, ah, because it's in there. But if we spent enough time with curiosity to watch and learn, we'd actually find that the Bible is God at work within a context, but also being quite critical of them. And so how do we do this practically? One of the most helpful tools is a study Bible. Um, this is the one that I'm going to give away at, um, after our response time today. Uh, it's the Holy Land Illustrated Bible. So any study Bible, this is the new one from the CSB that is, um, you can just see, oh, what is this? And there is a um, bronze dragon, sacred animal of the Babylonian god Marduk. So when they're talking about idols in the Bible, you can actually like look and see what we're talking about. Um, here we have uh, pictures from the city of Corinth. So when you're reading First Corinthians, so you want to get like, how do I read the Bible? And it's, it's here you go, something like this, and it's super helpful. Here's the as, this is like big, and you're like, I you can get this on your Bible for free. Faith Life has a study Bible that is absolutely free. And so when you have questions about what in the world is going on, you can just look up Faith Life study Bible on your phone and just read over that. So I'm gonna give this away in a little bit, but other options for those of you that wanna go beyond maybe just like a resource with the Bible, two of the most helpful books for me have been, um, they're kind of in a series. One is Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. The sequel is Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes. They're both fantastic. Um, The other one, specifically in dealing with ancient cosmology, is John Walton's The Lost World series, not Jurassic Park Lost World, uh, but The Lost World series. So the first one is The Lost World of Genesis 1, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, and it's looking at reading the Bible in in those specific kind of opening chapters in their context and how much more helpful it is when we do that. Um, Some other little quick examples. This one might be a little silly, but there's a streaming show called The Chosen, Um, that some of you guys love. I'm like anti most like Christian entertainment stuff. And so I've been pleasantly surprised with The Chosen. One of the things that's really helpful about this is as it's telling the story of the gospels is it does a really good job of immersing you in the culture of the New Testament. And so this is like a fun way to do that. Um, It's like, you can just watch TV, which all of us love to do now. And then another additional thing of helping us do that, this is part of my job as a teaching pastor, is to be a tour guide and a translator of the biblical world in the life of the church. And if you've been around Collective for some time, you know that that this is a big part of, of to understand this, we've got to understand it within its context. So there you go. Really, it all just comes down to reading the Bible slowly with a couple translations and uh, maybe a couple extra little tools to help out. So your practice for this week is gonna be to put this into practice at collectivechurch.com slash current series. You will see uh, the layout for the practice this week. It is going to be study again. And so the study one has a handful of options to pick from. You within your discipleship groups, pick a new one that you haven't done yet. Um, if you haven't joined a discipleship group and you want to, once again, that QR code on the back of the chairs is gonna help you do just that. And so there's a, you'll see everything from reading in a couple different translations, doing some background study on the passage. Um, all of these are helping us learn to read this a little bit better. So final point though, um, to real this has been a lot of brainy teaching stuff I wanna bring this now down into our context, what this means for us in our hearts and the way that we operate within our lives today, okay? With a final point on why we read the Bible is ancient contextual literature. Our goal is to avoid two common pitfalls that happen with our reading of the Bible. Okay, two common pitfalls that happen with the Bible. The first is what we could kind of call the fundamentalist pitfall. And this is a tradition within Christianity, specifically in the American West, that professes a, a literal authoritative reading of the Bible. The quote that you might hear regularly from them is, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. The key problem in this framework is it leaves out, I interpret it specifically through my cultural assumptions. If if all literature is contextual literature, it is culturally based, then to simply say, the Bible says it, I read it, that settles it, is you don't understand the context and the culture. And so without having their culture and context in mind, or at least aware and looking for it, you will assume your cultural assumptions. And this regularly leads to cherry picking all over the place. A great example of this is in Genesis chapter one, where we so regularly get very hyper focused on a literal six day young earth creation, but then we don't read around the passage where it uses language like a rakia, the glass dome being held up, that it's actually that space is water up there. It's an ancient cosmology. And so we need to be aware of a cherry picking that comes when we're reading our cultural assumptions, many people being on the defense of a secular uh, materialist version of Darwinism. And so in defense of that, we double down on this view as opposed to reading it within its context and understand what it's doing. As Ben Witherington, a scholar in the New Testament writes, a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you assume it to mean. A text... Biblical text without its context is just a pretext for whatever you assume it to mean. And so the first pitfall of the fundamentalist is the pitfall of what we could call cultural assumption. Reading my cultural assumptions into the text rather than seeking to be informed of theirs. But on the other side is the pitfall of what we could call progressive Christianity. And this is another side of this as well, where on this side we have a group that professes an ancient and contextual reading, but primarily as a way to cherry pick what they like or don't like within the text. I am not very worried about a bunch of fundamentalists in collective church. What would be my primary concern is us being a community where everything in the Bible that is taught is up for debate, compromise, or negotiation. As one progressive seminary tweeted, Union Seminary out of New York, While divinely inspired, you'll see this behind me, we deny the Bible is inerrant or infallible. That's big words for truthful and trustworthy. This is is a Bible college tweeting this. It was written by men over centuries and thus reflects both God's truth and human sin and prejudice. We affirm that biblical scholarship and critical theory help us discern which messages are God's. Mike Bird, writing, not from America, but Australia, so as an outsider looking in, translates this tweet for us. You'll see it behind me. This is his uh, translation of the Union Seminary tweet. The Bible has some bits that genuinely come from God and other bits that represent human prejudice and bigotry. Thanks to the invention of critical theory, a postmodern literary approach that teaches that all claims to truth are in reality claims to power, that everyone can be divided into either oppressor or oppressed, we can identify the divine bits of the Bible and the oppressive bits that are products of capitalist, patriarchal, heteronormative, racist, Zionist, and alt-right evil. He continues... No one else in church history was able to do this before us because the churches of the previous ages were filled with insidiously evil cisgender white males. So we really are the ones the church has been waiting for since only we have the privileged progressive perspective to show everyone which bits of the Bible actually come from God. Strange enough, the bits that come from God just so happen to conform to our pre-existing views. What an amazing coincidence. I am less worried with cultural assumption of the fundamentalist than the everything is open for debate and largely around a, if we use, we use contextual arguments to just disclaim anything that we don't want to agree with. See Bird, what he's doing here is he's clearly poking at the view. When we read between the lines, what we find here is the progressive view is that it's not the Bible that is human and divine, that it's not the Bible that is inspired, but rather it is our culture that is. It is an arrogance of our cultural moment. As A.J. Swoboda writes in his book, After Doubt, if I, a white Christian male, were to take elements of someone else's culture and use them for my purposes, they would call it cultural appropriation. But if I take the ancient writings of the Bible, largely written by people of color in a third world context based off our measurements today, and I use them to fit my purposes with no regard for the intent with which they were written, they call me enlightened and evolved. How can this be? Deconstructing Christianity can be, the progressive view, more than anything else, a sign of our privilege. We look at a a white man wearing, you know, an indigenous person's, you know, uh, like feather garment. And we, we would look at that and we would go, that is cultural appropriation all over the place. But what he's saying is when, when someone does that with any other cultural uh, artifact or representation, we look at that as wrong. It's cultural appropriation. When we do it with the Bible, picking and choosing what we want to take, irrespective of the context and culture that it came from, only for our benefit, what we're doing is cultural appropriation. And so if the first pitfall is the ignorance of our culture and then assuming, on the other side is the pitfall of cultural appropriation. It is the arrogance of our culture rather than humbly looking to read and receive. And so being aware of these two, the ignorance of cultural assumptions and the arrogance of cultural appropriation, the way that we're being called into is the way of covenant application. A humble reading that we receive a view of the scriptures that comes from what Jesus taught, that the Bible is both divine and human word. It is inspired in the words of the apostle Paul. And so what that means as a human word is that we first need to understand it in its human context. That does not mean that we need to adopt the language of Hebrew or the cosmological view of their culture or their patriarchal, whatever it might be, but we do need to see understanding their context then how God is at work within history. But second, receiving it not just as a human word but also as a divine word, we need to assume as a community that this story, these commands, this poem, whatever it might be, has implications to us as the current generation of the covenant people of Jesus, And so we read it as a unified library, looking for what this says in its cultural context about to go back to the unified library teaching, who God is, what it means to be his people, what it means for him to dwell with us and for Jesus to fulfill it all. That's what we come looking for in the midst of this cross-cultural experience. And so the application for us, how to do this, is we read the Bible humbly We read it slowly. Over a lifetime, we read it as a community seeking to understand the work of God within the context that he's been at work within. And we read this as a community both locally, like with us as collective, but also and chiefly is historically and globally. What this does, when we read the Bible with those outside of our like Angelino Western, modern viewpoint, and we start bringing in other global Christians that are alive today, and we start reading from the traditions of the church from over 2,000 years, is we are able to have this, uh, what scholars call the democracy of the dead is this voice into how we are to rightly walk out and interpret this that comes from both men and women from all over the world. That's kind of the joke of Mike Bird's whole point is that the, the, the stream of, of, of writing and, and commentary and thought over this book has only within the past 100 years been like a stereotypical white man's endeavor. It has been men and women of color all over the world speaking into reading and interpreting this book. And when we step out and step into that community, we find a more vibrant reading of the text that also then brings a deeper application into our world and our lives today. And so to go back to our second week, we read the Bible as the latest chapter to an ongoing story of God's redemption in this world. Our goal is not to replay past chapters, but to faithfully continue this story into God's future. And so as we read some stories, some commands are going to be far more easier to receive and find than others. But as we learn to understand their context, we will be better equipped to apply it to ours. And so our goal in understanding the ancient context of the Bible is a better application into our Angelino context. And as I said at the beginning, hear me, to be a follower of Jesus is not a call for you to be a scholar, for you to spend your free time geeking out on ancient culture. But simply today is just to set this as one little blip on your radar when you open up the text, a reminder that you're entering into a time machine. And that does not mean that it's any less God's word for you, Because the fact that the Bible is ancient contextual literature, and here's the good news. The Bible being ancient contextual literature is a testament to the fact that the creator God of Psalm 104, what we read a moment ago, is committed to meeting God, meeting people, excuse me, in their languages and in their cultures. If the Bible is anything that we're seeing today, it's that God is committed not to dropping a message like a vacuum out of heaven, but to working within certain people's languages and their context, their stories and their experiences in a way that they best understand him. And so when we see this, we find a God who's desiring to meet humans where we are. And this was seen most evidently hugely, bigly, for lack of a better word, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Being the act of God, entering into not just by his word, but in his very essence and being into the human world, into human life, into death, also that he might bring resurrection life into our stories and into our context. And the Bible is the story that God is still today forming people, forming them to be members of his kingdom in their language, in their culture, and in their context. And so if every time we open the Bible, we embark on this cross-cultural journey, it's a journey that God has said every single time he has promised to meet us in, but then empower us and send us back out into our lives and our context as we continue this story today. Let's pray.